Andrew here, just cutting in quickly before your podcast episode today to remind you that Radiopedia 2024, our virtual conference, is coming up this July 22 to 26. There's going to be lectures, case workshops, panel discussions, round-the-clock live streams, enhanced on-demand playback, including scrollable case images. It's free for Radiopedia all-access pass holders and in 125 low- and middle-income countries. There's tiered pricing for everyone else to promote uh, equitable global access, and there are even AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Uh, Anyway, you should definitely register, and I'll see you all online this July. Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is but a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, sometimes served neat, but mostly he's on the rocks. It's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Well, it's funny you should mention that, Dixon, because uh, I have myself here a uh, Montenegroni. Ah, well, I have myself a, let me just hold it up to the microphone. Ooh, I have myself a Negroni. This is our first ever, what are we calling it? Drinkful? Drunkful? Drinkful. (laughs) (laughs) We had a technical issue when we tried to record earlier in the day, so we delayed it to the nighttime, and nighttime equals cocktail time. It does indeed. So today's episode is a panel discussion I recorded at Radiopedia 2021 with interventional radiologists Heather Moriarty and Chris Nicholas. Heather is an IR based at Cork University Hospital in Ireland, and Chris is an IR at Great Lakes Medical Imaging in Buffalo, New York. Not sure if either of them are fans of cocktails. Heather, I suspect, is. Mm, I suspect so. Or maybe just straight out of the bottle. (laughs) Classic (laughs) Irish. Yeah, she'd get into a Guinness, all right. I'm already thinking we're going to have to edit all this. (laughs) The problem with drinking is Editing is required. Um, So I'm actually currently working on reviewing a whole bunch of uh, vascular and interventional educational R posters that have been submitted to R23, Radiopedia 2023, with Heather. Uh, Lots of amazing work. No less than five posters about acute aortic syndromes, (laughs) would you believe, (laughs) Frank? So we're going to have to sort through those as well as there's about 500 other um, R posters. Yeah, more than 500. And uh, across... 10 different subspecialties, so I'm working with a whole bunch of people. I did ask you to help out with the neuroradiology posters, Frank, but you skillfully (laughs) declined. Are you planning to actually help with the conference at any point? Look, I've already recorded my talks. I've done all my bits. I'm done. So uh, I don't know. Like I don't know what I can offer other than cocktails. Maybe we should have cocktails of the day. Oh, we did actually have somebody suggest that last year, didn't they? Yeah, you know, because last year you had the pina colada incident. So, oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we could come up with a, a cocktail for each day. Well, what would you have for day one? Uh, I think I'd go for some kind of Negroni variant, like a Montenegroni. Swap the Campari for a Montenegro. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> a slow sip to introduce you into the week. Day two, what are you thinking? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I always like a martini, so that would go down. So one day we'd have a martini. Oh, do you know the other thing I bought? I got a lot of eye rolls from uh, my wife. I I bought a half stave of uh, a bourbon barrel. Oh, really? So that with the butane torch, you could set it alight (laughs) and then put your glass over the top of it to coat the inside with smoke. (laughs) Next level. 
for a smoky old fashioned. That'll have to be on the list. I wish this was like a video podcast and we could we could go and tour your bar <laughs> at your house because it's it's quite impressive. I mean, I've got a reasonable size one, but yours is yours is a, another level. Well, that just means I don't drink enough, right? I buy faster than I drink. Oh, I don't. I think you drink enough, mate. <laughs> I don't think you need to go any harder. Um, should we get into this week's episode? Yeah, let's do that, and uh, we can have a, a sip. Yeah, yeah. We might be uh, a little bit drunker by the time the even more. All right. So this was recorded directly after Chris had just given a lecture entitled "When Clinicians Ask You About IR," and Heather a lecture on tips and tricks for image guided biopsies and drainages. I can hear the ice, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Both lectures can be found in the Interventional Radiology Lecture Collection over on our website. So I'm going to throw to myself because I'm the host of this panel discussion. And then Frank and I will be back for another chat at the end with another drink or two on board. And we'll see you then. So I'm now joined by the two speakers we've just watched, Heather Moriarty and Chris Nicholas. Thanks for two fantastic talks. Chris, you used all of your vlogging and YouTube experience to great effect. Well done. And, he- and Heather, all of your uh, research experience really came through in there. So it was really like a great combination to have the two different styles. I know, so I have my wife set it up. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Your wife is, uh, she's a gem for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Not the wife. You can- <laughs> your husband's all right, Heather. <laughs> so let's have a little bit of a chat about some of the things that came up in your talks. And uh, Chris, I'm going to start with a theme really that came through in your talk. And then if it's okay, I'm going to go through mainly some tips that I pulled out of Heather's talk to kind of emphasize those um, and to get your thoughts on them as well, Chris. Sure. So Chris, with your presentation, I guess it shows just how much clinical and multidisciplinary information and nuance that feeds into decision-making in, in IR. And I guess as a diagnostic radiologist who performs some pr- procedures, one thing I struggle with is that I don't often have the time to be doing all the ne- necessary prep work to do my absolute best with procedures. And I always have that worry, right, that my reporting list is building up and the longer I spend doing the planning and actually doing the procedure, the bigger that list becomes. So I guess, do you have any tips for a diagnostic radiologist to try and balance these competing interests? Yeah, no, that's that's the age-old dilemma. Um, you hit the nail on the head that there's not enough time in a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, we as interventional radiologists, uh, you know, a lot of us kind of straddle the world, the realms of diagnostic and interventional. We have sort of broken it down in our group so that, you know, the, the, the paras, the thora, the thyroid, FNAs, all like the little stuff has typically been associated with diagnostic or radiologist procedures. Yeah. Um, IRS just decided to do all that. And that I, would, I would welcome that at my hospital. Well, and that's the thing, right? You know, it, it, it's when, during my fellowship, you know, I, we didn't do any biopsies. We didn't do any drains. We didn't do, it was all the kind of, we only did sort of the quote unquote higher end IR cases, which is good because that's the foundation you want to have. If you can do those and you're going to be able to do the, the whole, the whole gamut of what's expected as a radiologist. But, you know, here we, we sort of, we, we look, we're, I'm in a private practice group. We look at it as what's the best division of labor. And it doesn't make sense to have our DR guys who, you know, might do one para a month, you know, doing them when an IR guy might be able to do a little bit faster, just on the same flip side as 
you know, my talk, I kind of use the skull-based neural parameter uh, example, but I, I'm, not, I'm not reading post-op head. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not reading post-op head and neck uh, CTs uh, just for that same reason because it's going to take me three times as long as somebody who's neurotrained. So I think dividing the labor accordingly, if everybody in the group thinks that's fair, but you're totally right, you know, having to check all the clinical parameters, but you do something a lot and you get more streamlined. You know, you, you can boil it down to the bare essentials. Okay, I need to know, check this, this, and this. Okay, I know the anticoagulation guidelines for these procedures like the back of my hand. I know I can quickly parse out what is or isn't indicated. So things become a lot faster, but I totally get it. If you're only sort of dabbling, um, I would recommend still doing all those due diligence because there is that real pressure to kind of stay productive. And even, even as an IR, we still have that pressure because productivity is what makes the the world go around in, in most private practice groups. So there still is always that pressure, you know, I've got to hit the list, got to keep reading more yeah. because reading, reading more DR is going to up my productivity numbers hands down. It's just, it's just a, a way of life, unfortunately. And all that stuff, you know, rounding on patients, doing consults, that stuff just kills your productivity. So there's always going to be that, that, that fire behind you to say, okay, keep, keep producing, keep producing, keep producing. Yeah. It's that idea that you just need to dedicate the time to the thing that's most important, which really is that time when you click the button on the biopsy gun, right? So that's where your focus needs to be on making sure that's safe. And I guess the diagnostic stuff can always kind of wait for you to, to get back. But yeah, I do find it very, very tricky. And I do like doing procedures. I've done I've done quite a few over the years, even with you, Heather. I think the first bone biopsy you did, uh, I was assisting you with. I've gone on to far, far more accomplished things after that. So I want to go through just and list some of the awesome tips from your talk, Heather. And you can just nod along in appreciation of your own work, <laughs> um, or you can pull me up on things and elaborate. Okay. Um, and Chris, feel free to chime in with your thoughts also. We've already mentioned it just before, actually, anticoagulation and procedures always like something tricky, but there are guidelines like the Cersei guidelines and often hospitals have their local guidelines and really they're your brand. I thought the, the thing that was a little bit trickier is kind of like when to start or restart anticoagulation. So can you just um, go through that again, Heather? Yeah, yeah. So um, what I've said is like most anticoagulants can be started within 24 hours and then the DOACs or the NOACs start those probably around 48 hours. And that's a kind of a good general rule. Um, the Cersei guidelines for anticoagulation have really good, uh, cover this really well in the, the uh, Ramon Ibrahim's paper from January this year. Um, and, you know, they kind of have, say, for lower risk procedures or for different anticoagulants like heparin, you might start that earlier after a few hours, like six hours. Um, and then for higher risk procedures, you might want to leave it a bit longer. Um, and then there's patients who are maybe pro-thrombotic um, and, and those patients will be kind of on a case by case basis. So you want to discuss both those with hematology or cardiology um, and have a game plan before you go in. Uh, but yeah, that paper from uh, Cersei this year is, is really excellent. So definitely have a read of that. Um, uh, yeah. And that's assuming that everything's going well, you know, restarting exactly. that kind of time frame. Do you ever kind of go against the guidelines, say you have to do a procedure even though the patient is on anticoagulation and you can't stop it? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's just a case-by-case -case discussion. You know, if the risks of doing the procedure outweigh uh, sorry, if the benefits of, of doing the procedure outweigh the risks, then you do the procedure and you can take extra precautions. Like, you know, if it's uh, a needle guided procedure, you can use coaxial and embolize the tract or, um, you know, have extra follow up or um, do it in a particular way. You might want to do it with CT or with angio on standby or whatever. 
uh, whatever way is going to be the safest and have precautions taken for that. But yeah, it's it's definitely just a discussion as to yeah. whether the procedure needs to, to happen. Yeah. And moving on to patient positioning, there was a, a few aspects to that kind of positioning the patient to make it more comfortable for yourself, especially if you're going to be doing a procedure that is over a length of time, yeah. but also a few different things. So positioning the patient to kind of obscure their view a little bit so that they don't they don't have to watch too much of it, I think is something that people don't often think about, particularly when I'm doing procedures in the head and neck, I kind of think, oh, hang on, uh, it's very close to the patient's face. And then the other one was, you know, using it to assist you, which is obviously probably the, the primary thing you want to be thinking about with patient position, that idea of, you know, biopsy side down for a lung lesion to try and reduce the risk of a pneumothorax, I thought was really good. But can that be tricky? Like every time I've done a long biopsy, I can't remember being able to do it very much with with the patient or, you know, the, the biopsy side down. Yeah, for most patients, it's pretty okay. I mean, for some patients, they're going to have a hard time lying on their side. And if they're if you think they're going to move, just put them in whatever patient, whatever position is most comfortable for them because the worst thing that can, you could have is a patient getting off the table in the middle of a, a biopsy. But, um, but yeah, patient position is really is really it's a really useful tool um so you can change it to, to try and find a safe path where there wasn't one and the ipsilateral cubitus for long procedures or for abdominal has like a threefold um uh, benefit so it, it it reduces diaphragmatic movement so then there's less tissue movement um and therefore less complications it decreases the risk of pneumothorax we think for lung biopsies this is a great paper by Gorilla drum and st james's group on that and then thirdly, if pulmonary hemorrhage does occur, then you want to put the patient in that position, the ipsilateral decubitus, so they're they're if they're already in that position, it's you know less of a big deal for them, and, and you've already protected their other uh, lung. And then so um, protect they protect the other lung, but does it also help kind of clot in that area and maybe tamponade the effect? Yeah, I mean they will still have a little bit of uh, some hemoptysis, but yeah, definitely that's the position you want them in. If you, if you have any hemoptysis, just uh, put them that side down. Yeah. I think you hit on a good point about sort of hiding your implements. Um, a breast imager actually uh, taught me that during residency back home. And she's, I think she kind of said along the lines of, you know, these needles are very scary looking, so nobody wants to see them. Yeah. Um, it's not to be deceiving. It's not to, it's not to, to surprise the patient because I give them a heads up first. But, you know, some of these biopsy devices, they are pretty intimidating and people for whatever reason, length of needle seems to be a big scary factor when no one really seems to know what, what gauge is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really length is like, I don't care about the length. I just care about how thick this needle is, but nobody seems, everyone sees, oh my God, that's a long needle. <laughs> so I kind of position myself so that my tray is behind, sort of behind me, but I'm between the patient and the tray. And then I can kind of, even when I'm taking my local needle, if I'm going to need to get deeper local anesthetic and I've got, you know, a long spinal needle, I may not use it all, but even just having, when I'm carrying the needle towards a patient, having it so they're looking down the barrel, so they don't see how long the thing is, because it, it doesn't help them to see to see the tools. Um, so that's just something I've kind of gotten in the habit of doing, uh, not really patient positioning wise, but just something, a little tiny thing that you touched on. And similar to positioning, Heather, you mentioned breathing and maybe getting the patient just to breathe normally and shallow rather than, you know, you see a lot of people trying to get patients to take a breath in and hold it or breathe out and hold it and that can often just lead to more anxiety in the patient and then they start having much more dramatic movements so i thought that was a that was a good tip there probably are some circumstances where you do need to do breath holds and things but fast majority of the time you can get away with with you know shallow breathing in a, in a comfortable patient that that's something that i do as well 
I found some attendings will say, okay, hold your breath. And then people are yeah, take a big breath in, especially for, for lung biopsies where, you know, as soon as somebody is finished holding their breath, the first thing you're going to do is take a big breath in. And that's what you're trying to avoid is negative intrathoracic pressure. Yeah. So I just kind of watch the shallow respirations, the chest gently rising and falling, and then time my movements. And as long as you're diligent about, you know, covering your needle, uh, I found that's a lot more predictable. Yeah. And another concept you uh, brought up, Heather, was kind of that idea that, you know, usually it's best to take the shortest route through the least number of anatomical spaces. Um, uh, but you kind of said that an exception to that would be a liver abscess drainage where you actually kind of want to go through a bit of normal liver to try and prevent seeding the infection elsewhere. So for seeding, it's more um, for the lesion biopsy. So for uh, rather oh, right, than for um, uh, like HCCs in particular, which is it's, it's rare. It's like less than 1% in most series. Um, but at the same time, you know, if this patient is a transplant patient and you're biopsying HCC, if you do see the tract, you could potentially um, uh, take them off the transplant list. So it's just some another precaution like coaxial technique and uh, going through some normal parenchyma can help reduce the tract risk of seeding. So if you are biopsying something that you think might be a HCC or papillary renal as well, so any renal cancers, um, and try and use those techniques, especially the coaxial technique for that. And speaking of renal, the the kind of non-targeted renal biopsy, you spoke about blood pressure control, making sure the patient has got a normal blood pressure to reduce the risk of bleeding. It kind of makes sense, but I've never never really thought about it. But I had been taught always to kind of biopsy, in particular the lower pole, you said either upper pole or lower pole, that dramatically reduces the risk of bleeding and, and other complications, I assume. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Just uh, the hypertension is, you know, important for every procedure, of course, but actually for renal biopsies in particular, it does reduce the risk of bleeding. So it is important to to uh, keep an eye on. Um, and then, yeah, going for some, you know, good thick cortex through the poles is the best way. And yeah, of course, the, the lower pole is usually by far the easiest unless it's transplant kidney or something, but um, but usually lower pole, yeah. yeah. And then avoiding the atrophic kidneys as well. You're unlikely to get a good biopsy result um, and you can cause complications pretty easily in those cases. Moving on to talk about coaxials. I kind of love coaxials. I'm sure you guys love coaxials as well. Mm. You kind of want to use that whenever you're doing a procedure where you want to take multiple biopsies and also where you only want to puncture through the capsule once, right? So you get your coaxial down there, you're in position, and then you don't have to come in and out multiple times through that through that capsule, which is where you know the pain comes from and often the bleeding comes from. And it, and it allows you to uh, embolize the tract as well if you yeah. do have some bleeding and if it's, uh, you know, getting a bit uncomfortable, it's a it's a good way to get you out of dodge with a bit of gel foam or something. I, I remember doing a procedure with you, Heather, and there was blood coming out of the coaxial needle and you were like, oh, I'll just get some foam and put that in there. I was like, oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it can definitely be very, very handy. And um, you don't necessarily know whether it's worked but um you know it feels good like you're actually doing something like you know there's blood coming out of this coaxial needle i've done something to try and fix it if they still keep bleeding then at least i've done all i could do at the time yeah. um but if you kind of ignore it and just pull it out then uh, i guess you you haven't really tried have you it's treating the operator andrew <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> treating my anxiety there was it's red stuff better at there was red stuff <laughs> i did something it, it's, it's pretty good hemostatic so it, it, yeah it's a pretty good option you spoke about preferring drain placement rather than just aspirating something. So if you can get a drain in there, put it in there. But make sure that when you put the drain in that you try and aspirate everything to dryness at that time. So don't just think, oh, there's a drain in there. It'll drain everything away passively, actually actively aspirate it into your into your bag and then leave 
the drain in. I guess one exception you said was kind of those transvaginal drainages where it's probably not very nice to have have a drain left in. Um, so you just try and aspirate those ones and then and then pull your needle out. I guess the other thing when we're talking about draining abscesses is the idea that you can provoke a septic episode. And I thought it was really good that you emphasize the importance of antibiotics because that's when again one of those things that I don't do is you know have enough time to look what medications is this patient on? Have they had antibiotic coverage? When was their last dose? Do they need an extra dose? So just reminding you know, people who don't do it all the time, like me, um, to look for those things so that you're not making the patient you know, first do no harm, right? And then the last point I had from your talk was about the bone biopsy. And how do you get that sclerotic bone <laughs> sample out? Because I've had this problem multiple times. What, your tip was... Try brute force first, and if that doesn't work, um, no. Warming the needle is a is a trick that I only recently learned. But actually, um, I mean, it doesn't make the the lesion fall out if you're struggling to get it out. But it, but it does uh, help you ease the sample out, and it it, re- it reduces the risk of crush artifact. And um, you, yeah, well, your hands well, falling off with uh, struggling to get it out. So. Yeah, I've basically just been known to bang it on the table uh, and it pops out the top. But I'm sure that's crushing <laughs> the sample. Chris, have you got any tips for getting those bone biopsies out? Yeah, you've actually hit on something interesting um, because at one of our local hospitals, for whatever reason, we had a run of, of non-diagnostic samples that were allegedly crushed, et cetera. Yeah. So actually, I, what I recently, literally last week started doing, uh, I think what goes on is, is and this may be complete, completely bogus and made up, but I think it, we use the on-control. Yeah, exactly. It's like IRS. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of research and just kind of cowboy, right? Hey, gun, gun, no. yeah. The, the needles that we use, I think the on-control needles are actually tapered so that the le- the sample stays in the needle. Yeah, they have this little out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so I actually, the kit that we have comes with this little hourglass looking um, uh, adapter that can fit on the tip to cover the sharp end. So what I've actually started doing is shooting, is, is pushing the, the sample out of the needle backwards. Yeah. So it's like if the if, if, picture the sample only moving through the needle in one direction. So the sample comes out the hub. And the last few I've done, I did big samples because now the the, the the hematologists are asking for you know like well we need like two or three centimeters or more if yeah, you can take the whole medical on the way through. Yeah. Exactly. And we want the entire needle full of bone. Thank you very much. And we don't want any of it crushed when you when you get it out. Yeah. So not realizing that the, the bigger the le- the sample, the the more it's going to force it's going to take to get out because of the friction. So. I've tried. I've actually started doing pushing it out the opposite way through the sharp tip. But again, you got to be very careful because you're pushing a blunt object to a sharp needle. That's why I use that adapter, and I find that those come out a lot easier. Yeah. I don't know if that's just been fluke in the last few. Um. But anyway, all you guys report back. And see. I've tr- I've tried that a few times, and, and it has worked. But one thing, one other tip that I kind of got is that if you are doing the technique where you bang it, I've started putting some gauze over the top of it so that it doesn't fly out the top, and then you've lost your sample. So put something on top so that as you bang. It might come out the top, but at least there's something there to stop it from flying away on you. Yeah, I've been there before. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound great when it when it flies off in the air. Um, That's not the world. <laughs> so Heather and Chris, thank you uh, again for your fantastic talks. And we're going to continue this session now by actually showing an encore of your talk from last year, Chris, all about procedural tips and tricks for the non-interventional radiologist. Uh, so that'll play right now. Thank you both, um, and I'll I'll see you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Heather Moriarty and Chris Nicholas, for joining me for that chat. That was almost 
two years ago now, and looking back, it it definitely did improve my procedural processes. Like the tips that Heather gave, the the approach that that Chris described, it really did help me kind of take the procedures a little bit more seriously, spend a little bit more time on thinking about things like antibiotics, uh, like anticoagulation, those kind of things that often uh, can slip your mind if you're trying to to rush through a procedure. Planning, planning, planning is the key, isn't it? It is. And I think that's a really important message. I forgot to mention, actually, Gaylord, that I used AI to improve the sound quality in that panel discussion. Did you? Yeah, yeah, because it was one of those, it was very much a Zoom-affected audio recording, that one. Uh, Particularly uh, Chris's audio was very much sounding very robotic. So there's a new AI tool from uh, Adobe podcast, and I uploaded the audio there, and uh, what came back was, was pretty good, so I went with that. Is it noticeable difference? Because every time I've tried to use those tools, it makes it sound worse rather than better. If the audio quality is good to begin with, then certainly I wouldn't recommend using it. It definitely makes you, it loses a bit of the character from the voice. Right. Actually, I've got an example. I can just play some for oh, you. Okay. So here is a clip before AI has processed the audio. Do you have any tips for a diagnostic radiologist to try and balance these competing interests? Yeah, no, that's that's the age-old dilemma. Um, you hit the nail on the head that there's not enough time in a day. There you go. So that's pre, and then this one is post. Do you have any tips for a diagnostic radiologist to try and balance these competing interests? Yeah, no, that's, that's the age-old dilemma. Um, you hit the nail on the head that there's not enough time in a day. Well, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's yeah. It's much better. To me, listening to it, I sound different. Like, it doesn't quite sound like me. So I apologize yeah. to Chris and to Heather <laughs> if it doesn't quite sound like them when they're listening back. But I think to people who don't know me particularly well or people who don't know Heather and Chris, the actual quality of being able to listenability of the episode will be improved from it. So it's something I might play with a bit. And so just a kind of a taste of the, the future, isn't it? Like these things are hopefully going to get easier and easier. Yes, before we are all exterminated by our robot <laughs> overlords. <laughs> I don't know, like very recently, uh, GDP4 has been announced uh-huh. right behind Bing Chat. And the speed at which these things are improving is pretty phenomenal. And... It's not clear that any of these organizations are taking AI safety very seriously, considering the money that's at stake. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. I oscillate wildly from thinking, this is awesome, to build a bunker. (laughs) (laughs) I know you said the other day that you could almost get, you know, ChatGPT to write an interaction between two Australian radiologists on whatever topic and then uh, feed it into some kind of AI to convert that into voice and then insert no, that. We should try that, shouldn't we? Maybe for the next hostful, yeah. we can we can throw to ourselves in virtual form, AI form for a, for a segment, see how we but go. But you know what, what the ridiculous situation that might arise is? It'll is, be funnier than us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we can, um, like you'd write down in point form what you want to discuss on the podcast and then the AI would generate the podcast and expand on it. Mm-hmm. And then the listener who doesn't want to spend hours listening to it can use an AI to summarize a podcast back to point uh-huh. four. And so you've got all this AI work in between with humans just getting <laughs> dot points on either side. <laughs> and it just comes in an automated email to you. A few dot points. Yeah. This is what happened on the podcast this week. <laughs> no one bothers listening. They talked about meat. <laughs> they talked about meat. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, we actually uh, should talk about that panel discussion itself. Um, did it trigger any classic Frank Gaylard pet hates, anecdotes, or, or drinking games? <laughs> there are two points that I think were really interesting, and that I guess it's a pet hate. And one of them is around anticoagulation. I think radiologists or people in general are very concerned about minimizing the risk of the procedure they're doing. So if you're doing an epidural injection, the thing you really don't want to see is an epidural hematoma. So, you know, you'll stop anticoagulation, etc. But the thing you should actually be trying to minimize is overall risk to the patient. If the patient really needs the anticoagulation because of coronary artery disease or AF or whatever else it is, you might be reducing the risk of a complication from your procedure while simultaneously increasing the risk of some other complication like stroke much more than your reduction. And I don't think we're very good at working that out because it's difficult to quantify the risk and it's difficult to quantify the severity of the complication. Mm. You know, what's worse, a moderate stroke or a big epidural hematoma and being paraplegic? It's really hard to answer that sort of thing. But the knee-jerk response of minimizing just your own procedure rather than taking into account the whole patient, I think is something we don't do enough of. I think you should be willing to have a higher complication risk personally if the overall outcome for the patient is better. Makes me think of the trolley problem, you know. Uh, you know, you know, if you're yes. actively diverting the train to kill one person, uh, as opposed to the three people who will be killed passively if you do nothing, most people in that situation would not interfere, not do anything, and that's what they're doing here with anticoagulation. They're basically right. going, "I don't want to take any risk. I don't want to be the one who causes a hematoma, and I don't really care about the potential." stroke that I'm causing because that will be more indirectly related to me. I think that's really a natural human response. But if you were the patient, mm. you would prefer to have your overall risk reduced. An extension right. of this is that there is never a scan that seems to be more urgent than a question mark quarter equina on a patient who had an epidural injection a few days ago by an anesthetist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, oh my gosh, whereas normally they would ignore those symptoms entirely if it was just a patient presenting yeah. to the emergency department. But as soon as it's like, oh, I put a little catheter in this person's back and now they've got yeah. quarter equina syndrome. They haven't even, they've just got a little bit of weakness or whatever. Uh, actually, you, there is one more urgent scan than that. Yeah. And that's that situation, but where the patient is a lawyer. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I think you're quite smooth with alcohol on board, but then again, I've got alcohol on board as well. So You just think I'm funny. <laughs> I, just, I just think you're funny. Uh, anything else that you thought? The other one that I liked was the hiding instruments. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was and very good. I think that's really important because we get used to what these needles and catheters, et cetera, look like. But a 15-centimeter needle, even if it's slender, is petrifying. I mean, mm. you can transfix a patient with one of those. So that's definitely something I'm really aware of. The other one is um, how you get a patient to attribute pain of the procedure is really important. So a patient expects local to sting. Yeah. If the local stings, but then they don't feel anything after that, they think that's a great procedure. Yeah. The exact same amount of pain 
caused by you, especially if you've told them that you've given them local, but then pain occurs, um, is experienced very, very differently. So I have a little bit of a trick here, and I'm not sure how ethical it is, but um, I think it works really well. And patients seem to come through the procedure. Uh, this is spinal injections predominantly. Come through it really relaxed and really positive about it. And this is, uh, I have a little spiel when I give the local. Before I do anything, I say, look, I'm going to give you local first in the skin and then deeper down. Yeah. And I'm sorry, local stings. There's nothing I can do about it. But after that, you shouldn't feel very much until I get really close to the nerve. And then when I give the local, I put the local in and I say, now I'm giving you local in the skin. And then I wait a little bit and I take the procedure needle and I say, now just putting a needle in deeper down. And I specifically use the same words deeper down that I think they'd be rightfully interpreting that as being local. And so that needle goes in and they might experience a little bit as you get deeper down and I get pretty close. And then I say, okay, now I'm going to be close to the nerve, get in there, maybe touch the nerve or not, and then say, okay, we're in place. We'll just check where we are. Now I'm doing the injection and we're out. And, you know, very often they'll say, oh, the local hurt. But after that, I didn't feel anything. That was amazing. So getting as much of the discomfort attributed to the local, whether it's by putting lots of local in or by implying that some of the discomfort is from the local, ends up being a really good experience for patients. Do you do any tricks like that with your procedures? I worked for a period in private radiology. And so this whole, uh, I'd almost say a performance around doing a procedure, the psychology of it, it's really, really important because you want to give the patient that placebo effect on top of hopefully the therapeutic yeah. effect from the cortisone, if it if it is there or not, and so yeah, there's a whole there's a whole performance. I, I had some colleagues who were amazing at it. My main thing that I do with local anaesthetic for a lot of injections, I'm use the local anaesthetic to actually guide me to actually assist me with the procedure. So, for example, subacromial bursa injection, I go in with the local anaesthetic and go straight down into the bursa and use the dice, the, the local anaesthetic to actually open up, confirm that I'm in the bursa, then leaving my needle in place, take off that syringe, replace it with the syringe that's got the mixture of marcaine and celestone or something, and then inject that in. And you've got the added benefit of not only you've given local anaesthetic for the patient's comfort, but you've also used it to assist you with the procedure. You know that all of your cortisone is going into the bursa rather than into the tendon or the surrounding fat. Yeah. And all the pain that they're experiencing is from when you're injecting the local. Exactly. And the pain's not your fault, you know. I do the same thing with, with tendon sheaths, things like that, where you don't have to stress because, you know, not until I'm confident that all that local anaesthetic is running up and down that tendon sheath do I then inject my cortisone. And you watch a lot of uh, trainees who, are, who have one syringe filled with all of the stuff that they're injecting. And by the time they eventually get into the tendon sheath, all of their, their, uh, right. their medication is actually injected into the tissues surrounding it. Uh, and so it removes the stress, more comfortable for the patient and becomes one kind of thing. And, and basically, not until you know you're in that tendon sheath or inside the bursa, uh, do you inject the material. And at that stage, the patient is probably not feeling anything and you're not actually going to move the needle again at that yeah. point other than out. And I think that's a really important point because, um, and there's quite a lot of research on this, I know of some of it anyway, that 
a patient's recollection of pain is disproportionately affected by the last bit of the experience. So if you start with pain and then have a pain or low pain or pain-free period at the end, then they'll remember that. Whereas if you end with high pain, Mm -hmm. they'll remember the entire procedure much worse. And there's studies there showing with people putting probably medical students' hands in water baths of different temperature and, you know, controlled sort of studies showing that. And so in private, I guess it's harder, but if you get a chance to just calm things down and let the patient still be on the table, but pain-free while you do the dressing, while you do a bit of paperwork or whatever, it really helps them forget, I guess, mm-hmm. the pain that they had at the beginning of the procedure. And you should never end a procedure at the maximal pain point. Yeah. Um, One other thing kind of related to that is sometimes if you do inject a nerve root and it does precipitate the patient's pain, often I will kind of lean into that and go, well, that means the needle is mm. in the perfect spot. Um, so that will settle down very quickly because there's some extra local anesthetic in there, but it just tells me that we're very close to the site and uh, this is actually quite useful information. And that yeah. I think that psychology that, you know, that this is an expected thing and, in fact, it means that you've done a really good job. You put the needle right next to yeah. my symptomatic nerve is worth kind of... Tw- I'm not sure whether that's been proven to be effective in, in changing the patient's pain psychology, but for me that's definitely something that I do and it seem, seems to work. I do that all the time. I think the last... 30 seconds of your interaction with the patient are super important. You know, I'll say, I'm, this is if it's true, but, you know, I'm really pleased with how this injection has spread. Uh, I couldn't have hoped for a better outcome. I think you're going to have, you know, a really good chance of having a good result from this. And, um, you know, anecdotally, patients that I have seen months and months later seem to have really good results from that approach. And I don't think I'm doing the injection any better than my yeah. colleagues. I, I think if there's a benefit there, it's that placebo effect and uh, minimising the stress and trauma of the experience rather than the actual procedure. We have written here, it says, other things not to talk about. <laughs> and it says, anecdote of flicking the biopsy across the room. Uh, so I can, I can edit this out, but I just thought I'd let you maybe go there. If you're feeling the drinks, oh, uh, lubricating your mouth. I'm sure we've all had this occur or maybe not, but as a trainee doing a bone biopsy, again, trying to get the little core of tissue out. And, uh, I thought I'd be clever and, and help it off the biopsy needle with a scalpel blade. Yeah. And I uh, didn't realize that as I was doing that, I was bending the scalpel blade, sort of like a um, a um, diver in a pool off the off the flexible board. <laughs> and then, as as the scalpel blade got off the tip, the needle flicked up, and all heads turned to follow this little <laughs> core of tissue. A slow motion moment. Yeah, and it's, you know, things you never want to hear in an operating room or a CT room is watch where that lands, but we never found it. And um, and that's a, you know, that's a conversation you have to have. Good news and bad news. That was a great biopsy. Yeah. 
unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to need to do another one. <laughs> Open disclosure. Um, it seems like, I can't remember it, but it seems like something that they would have done in Scrubs. There would have been, that would have happened in an episode <laughs> for sure. So someone can let us know in the comments whether uh, whether that's happened and, and we can uh, we can play the audio or something from that. Uh, we probably should wrap things up. So, Frank, how can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as uh, at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org. Please do with any ideas and feedback you might have. And if you want to support us, Radiopedia more precisely, not us directly, become a paid supporter, uh, either of the website or purchase an all access pass and you can get access to all of our conferences talks, courses, etc. If you want to support us directly, perhaps we need like a buy me a drink or something. Buy me yeah, a that's right. <laughs> we should have one of those curated um, spirits drink lists for Radiopedia where you can get all the bottles. <laughs> <laughs> and what else can people do, Frank? Well, you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. And don't forget to leave comments and the funnier and more interesting the comments are, the more likely they are to be read out on our next Hostful. Yeah, we should do a Hostful soon Mm. in the next few weeks, I reckon. Um, Also, another thing I thought was let your friends and colleagues know. So if you're enjoying this podcast, that's probably the number one way that, that I hear about Um, podcasts and start listening to new ones so if you're enjoying this please do let people know tell everyone that it's totally rad (laughs) now i uh i played for my uh daughter of the podcast you're you're not gonna subject me to this again you're stay rad from last week what did she think she said she said well he said the words (laughs) 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 that that was it he said yeah, the words. Damning with faint praise. That's not even faint praise. There's no praise in there whatsoever. I also need to say that she's not nine. She's almost 10. Okay. <laughs> For the record. Um, so let's sign off then and see how you go with, with it this week. Uh, we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad, everyone. Stay rad. That's good. That's good. I like that one. (laughs) Alcohol does you well. It suits you well, mate. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Such a good drink, though. It's just such a good drink. It's good. Have you tried it with... um Montenegro instead mm. of Campari. No, nah. no, I haven't. I reckon it's even better. All right, we'll have to get some mm. because it just—it's literally the the only thing I—I I mean, I don't mind a gin and tonic, but it is the main thing that I enjoy at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs>